Welcome to episode 16 of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr., and this is the podcast dedicated to professional wrestling history from 1870 to 1920, although we have been known to go all the way up into the 1930s from time to time. And in this episode, which is a solo episode, I'm going to read a portion of my newest book, Working or Shooting, The History of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. But first, I have an announcement, and... We've talked about this on the past couple of podcasts. In November, I went to back to work uh, for my alma mater. And I was still hoping to be able to produce two episodes a month, but I knew that uh, two co-hosted episodes a month were going to be very difficult with both my son and my schedule. Over the last few weeks, trying to get this podcast schedule which I'm actually doing the day before I'm going to release it and trying to look at the schedule ahead for 2023 I realized it will be very difficult if not impossible to do two episodes a month so I am reluctantly going to make this a monthly podcast starting in January although I'm hoping for the January episode not only will I have my son there to co-host but we're also going to get my cousin Dan back in the studio for another episode. So stay tuned. Hopefully we're able to pull that off. We will be releasing the episodes on the second Monday of the month, since that was the day we were doing the co-hosted episodes anyway. So look for the podcast the second Monday of every month, which for the month of January will be... January 9th, I'm pretty certain. So for this month, or for this month, for this week's episode, I was just going to read a chapter, or not even a full chapter, from Working or Shooting. And I originally purchased a microphone because I was going to make all my books available on audiobook. But there's quite a bit that goes into the actual technical recording of an audiobook in that. And I definitely don't feel like I have mastered any of this enough yet to be able to do that. But hopefully we will have the books all available in audiobook form sometime within the next year or so. So this is Chapter 1. Bibby establishes the title, sort of. Many historians believe Edwin Bibby and Duncan C. Ross wrestled for the first recognized professional wrestling championship in the United States on January 19, 1881. The men wrestled catch-as-catch-can style for the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. However, neither the promoters, or in brackets, backers, nor wrestlers promoted the match as a title match in January 1881. Fans and newspaper reporters recognized the championship in the following months. 
Bibby met Ross at the Turn Hall, a shortened version of the Turnivarian Hall. German immigrants known as Turners promoted physical culture like gymnastics, weight training, wrestling, boxing, and other sports throughout the United States. Promoters often book sporting events at these halls. Most St. Louis professional wrestlers like George Baptiste started and continued their training at the two Turnivarian Halls in St. Louis. While I use the term promoters, during this era wrestling promoters were exceedingly rare. Often wealthy backers who wanted to see the wrestlers compete paid for a venue to hold the match. The backers often lost money on the venture. 500 spectators paid to see the best 3 out of 5 falls match. The crowd seemed small, but in the early days of professional wrestling, a paying audience of 100 to 500 spectators was the norm. The wrestlers each put up $250 to go to the winner plus two-thirds of the gate. The losing wrestler and promoters slash backers divided the rest of the gate. The story of the match was the size disparity between the two athletes. Duncan C. Ross was large for a heavyweight of the day. He stood six foot one inches tall and weighed 205 pounds. Edwin Bibby was a small wrestler in any era. Bibby stood a generous 5 feet 5 inches. He weighed about 155 pounds after a shower with all his clothes on. With a shallow chest and lean limbs, Bibby resembled a gardener more than a champion wrestler. Bibby and Ross shook hands before beginning the match. Bibby pushed the offense in the first fall by securing two near falls with waist holds. Ross reversed the first waist hold, forcing Bibby to turn a complete somersault to prevent a fall. The crowd loudly cheered Bibby's slick escape. Bibby secured a leg grapevine and turned Ross onto his back for the first fall at the 12-minute mark. Bibby scored the second fall in only three minutes after a waist hold takedown. While Ross was on his hands and knees, Bibby pushed Ross back and forth from the top until he flipped Ross onto his back for the second fall. Ross quickly turned out of the fall and protested to the referee. The referee shook his head and raised Bibby's hand. Gamblers working the crowd, a customary practice in this era, tried to encourage betting. A New York City police sergeant quickly shut down spectators trying to bet on Bibby. The sergeant told the gamblers, that's what we are here for, to stop betting. The third fall was controversial as Bibby seemed to score the third fall after a double leg takedown and slam, but Ross bridged over and trapped Bibby underneath him. The referee awarded the third fall to Ross. Ross dominated the fourth fall. He pinned Bibby with an upper body takedown and pin after 12 minutes. The men tied the match at two falls apiece. Bibby did not allow Ross the advantage long. Bibby grabbed a leg lock, which he used to bring Ross to the mat. The newspaper coverage does not say whether it was a submission, but Bibby quickly scored the final fall in five minutes. I am torn on whether this match was a work or a legitimate contest. 
Bibby could have easily won the match in three straight falls if not for the referee's decision in the third fall. The action-packed match with short falls and split of the first four falls argues for a work. In fairness, even during legitimate contests during the 1800s and early 1900s, if the wrestler felt that they were far superior to their opponent, the superior wrestler let his opponent have a fall to make the other wrestler look good. They don't, normally did not allow two falls, though. In the fifth fall, Bibby took no chances and used a leg lock to end the match. If they were working the match, Bibby was going to make sure Ross did not double-cross him. In a worked match, if the, the wrestlers did not put up the side bet, and split the gate evenly between them. Since the promoter and wrestlers did not build a match as a championship match, Ross may have been willing to lose, particularly if Ross thought Bibby would beat him anyway. If forced to offer an opinion, Bibby and Ross worked the match. <clears throat> I wanted to just spend a few minutes kind of emphasizing a, a couple of the things that I read there about that first title match. One, a lot of times wrestlers would put up 250, oh, sometimes as small as 100, but normally between 250 and 1,000 as a side bet. And so whoever won the match would, if it was $500 a side, whoever won the match would get their 500 back and the 500 from their opponent. These are in legitimate contests. If it was a worked match, they still posted that money with a uh, newspaper or that, so they would say the side bet was up, so people wouldn't realize they were working the match. But when the the winner would not keep the other five hundred dollars, they would each keep their original stake, plus they would split the gate money evenly. So instead of seventy five percent going to the winner. Each person would take 50 of whatever that was supposed to be. The promoters would split what was rest, what was left, which usually wasn't very much, if anything. Most backers took a, a loss in these early days. It wasn't until the promotional system develops in the late teens and early 20s that promoters start turning the tables and the money is more on their side than on the side of the wrestlers. When I started writing and researching professional wrestling in this era, I really would have preferred not to have to try to determine whether the matches were works or legitimate. One, I, I honestly, I thought that there were a lot more legitimate contests than there were. There were a lot of legitimate contests in the first 50 years of professional wrestling, but there were also many more worked matches, I think, than most people realized. Um, some matches that I've heard reported or written about as shoots or legitimate contests, I actually think were probably works. But it's difficult to figure that out because you're reading newspaper accounts. There's no video of it. So you're reading newspaper accounts. Um, very few wrestlers wrote about their careers. So you have very little other corroborating information other than newspaper accounts and some are easier than others because everybody agreed yep that was a contest they were wrestling and you go and you look at it and 
Yes, it, it looks like it could be. If the wrestlers were evenly matched, a strong sign that it is a uh, legitimate or contest is if it's long, boring, and inconclusive. Just like in MMA, you see these stalemate matches that you know nobody has a real advantage in. Or submission wrestling is probably a better, actually, that submission wrestling is a better comparison where you can have. 10 minutes of very little action because they're equal and they're stalemating each other. The uh, When you have a more exciting, shorter match, a lot of times that was a work unless the other wrestler is just so far superior, which did happen. And because uh, even Evan Strangler Lewis, who is the most, who was the meanest, he had a more prominent mean streak than Frank Gotch, than Ad Santel. Evan Lewis is the wrestler that has the most pronounced mean streak of anybody I've ever researched. Even he, when he would go into a town and he would work a match with the local wrestler, if the local wrestler was respectful and didn't do anything during the match to infuriate Lewis, which he would be very wise not to infuriate Lewis, then he would... Uh, let the wrestler have one fall, not two. But if it was a best three out of five fall match, the match would go four falls. Lewis would let them have a fall so they could brag that they got a fall over Lewis and it would keep them strong, make them look strong in their hometown. I'm mixing terms because I'm using a term that would be more in the work thing. He didn't want to destroy, completely destroy the person's local reputation. So he let them have a fall. And sometimes the newspaper reporters would even say, uh, the, the person uh, won the third fall, but it looked like Lewis kind of laid down for him so as not to completely destroy his reputation. And a term you may hear uh, besides work or exhibition is there was a newspaper term in the late 1800s, early 1900s called hippodroming. So, and... This term was used uh, for the Lewis, um, the second set of, no, it was the, the third title reign, when Lewis was wrestling Joe Acton in a series of matches in 1887 where he took the American title. Uh, everybody pretty much that covered it and um, most of the people that have researched it historically, including me, all believe those matches were all works. They were all working together. So the newspapers at the time referred to their hippodroming. So if you've ever hear that term or read that in a wrestling history book, hippodroming just means that they were working the match. They were putting on a prearranged exhibition. And the thing that really hurt Acton and Lewis, it was the first couple matches people couldn't tell. But the last match they had, Acton had been ill for a month before that seriously ill and he was so weakened from being ill they really couldn't hide the fact that they were working together and that was what really exposed their series of matches as works for this book i was su more surprised i thought that most of the matches that i would be writing about were legitimate contests and it wasn't a 50-50 split, but there were many, many more worked matches than I suspected when I first started researching the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. 
And the other thing I discovered while researching this project, and I think I know of at least one other historian that's doing a title history, and it's on a Greco-Roman uh, title around this same era. Those title histories are rarely linear. There's controversy about them. A lot of times they weren't even actually a belt or a cup or a medallion or anything. It was just you were recognized. Everybody recognized you were the champion. So you carried that title even though you weren't you didn't have a championship belt or a trophy some people were recognized even though they didn't beat the recognized champion so it's very very confusing and i believe with this book i've at least sorted out a lot of the confusion um, there's a gray area when it comes to this title there's a clearly established title for about 20 years or so and then there's another gray area really pro more promotional tactic not really title era either uh, as well either <laughs> as well um, so most official title histories run 1881 to 1922 but my title history is a bit tighter than that so if you read the book i hope you enjoy it and please let me know what you uh, think of it and the only other thing I wanted to cover in this episode, this is going to be a little shorter episode, but the one on January 9th should be quite a bit longer, is I have watched, and we're probably going to review this more in depth in the next episode, but I have a recommendation for everyone. A lot of it's available on YouTube, and that is this Tales of the Territory uh, show that they just put on, I think it was on Vice, on Vice TV, and... It was the tales from the, the territories, and they covered Memphis, world-class, Mid-South, Portland, Calgary, and Florida. Calgary and Florida are the only two I have left. Um, there was no real rhyme or reason about how I went about watching it. I think I watched Memphis first, and then Mid-South and world-class, because those were my favorite non-St. Louis shows in the 80s and then Portland and I'm going to watch Stampede because I was a big Bret Hart fan before Florida is the one I want to watch last because I didn't see a whole lot of Florida when it was going on I just read about it in the wrestling magazines but that is the show that I really wished I had been able to see in the early 80s late 70s early 80s when Eddie Graham was at his peak I really wish I would have been able to see Florida. Um, so that'll be actually the last show that I watched. So I still have two of the shows left to watch. Uh, in general, I've watched the last couple of uh, premium live events for WWE. I will say that under uh, Paul Levesque, Triple H, that the creative is much better. Uh, SmackDown and Raw, while not a solid three or two hour show is still much more watchable than it was under the last year or so events I, I found those shows unwatchable i would see what the bloodline was doing and then just skip through the rest so i could watch about seven hours of weekly programming in about 30 minutes i don't uh it takes me longer now because i find more, more of the stuff is watchable and all of the premium live events have been better the last two I didn't watch live. I watched the first couple live. 
I watched the last couple on replay because there's usually a match or two I'll just skip over. When you're uh, stuck on time, sometimes you don't want to watch the in, the entire show. And that's one of the beauties about the time we live in. It's one of the detriments to it. Because I tell my son, I can't recreate for him what professional wrestling was like for me in the 80s because you can watch whatever you want now. You have exposure to everything, and I didn't. I had St. Louis. And occasionally if somebody sent a tape to Sam that he would put on Wrestling at the Chase, that's the only time you saw wrestling outside of St. Louis in those days before cable. You had your local wrestling promotion. The other thing is you didn't skip ahead. We didn't have VCRs till the mid-80s. So you did not skip ahead on a show. You watched the entire show from beginning to end. And it was one of those shows where you ran to the bathroom as soon as the commercial started because you didn't want to miss any of the show that week. I can't recreate that now because you can just watch it a few days later on streaming and skip through all the stuff that you're not interested in. So that's the beauty of this time. But it's also the challenge because I can't recreate what it was like back before we had all these technological innovations that have made our lives so much easier. I am not one of the historians that thinks, oh, it was so much better in the old days. No, it's wonderful to have a cell phone in my pocket that's just a baby computer that has replaced you know, my calendar, my day planner, all, all the my note-taking you know, it's, it's all in my pocket in a little device now. So I think it's great. I know a lot of people are like, oh, it was so much better back when we were writing on paper and, you know, we had these file cabinets full of stuff. But not not me. I, I, I appreciate the era we live in. It's just I can't recreate for my son, who's never been a wrestling fan, the experience in discovering pro wrestling because that doesn't exist anymore. So I hope you enjoyed this brief episode. This is Christmas. Go be with your family. Hope you have a, a great holiday season, no matter what you celebrate. And until next time, keep uh, enjoying your family. Enjoy your time. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.